sorrow and grief of particularly Jerusalem after it was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Uh, tradition says that Jeremiah the prophet wrote this book. We, we don't know for sure, but I want to give you guys a little bit of the feel of this book, just from some of the verses or the ideas within some of the verses throughout this, uh, this collection of five poems, just to kind of get a sense of just how dark the community um, is, kind of the darkness they're in. This is basically uh, the community that survived the invasion. So like when Babylon broke into the city, these are people who weren't killed, and then there were the people who weren't exiled. So this is like this remnant of broken, starving people. That's essentially the audience of Lamentations. Um, so we find early on in the, in the book, uh, Lamentations 1-3, that many Judeans have gone into exile, and this is kind of the remnant that's here. Um, and you quickly realize that people are, everyone's starving. That's essentially the situation. Um, Babylon had laid siege to Jerusalem for a long time, and so they ate most of their uh, food stores in the siege, Anything they had left surely would have been eaten by the Babylonian army. They would have come in and eaten the rest of their food, killed a bunch of people, exiled a bunch of people, and now this remnant is just here starving to death. And people are trading their treasures for food. Um, and there's a lot of really dark scenes. Um, the mouths of, of nursing infants are dry because their mother's bodies are just too weak to, and malnourished to produce milk anymore for them. Um, children are begging in the streets but no one has anything to give them. Babies and children are dying of starvation in their mother's arms. Um, and this is, this is gross, but this, hap this happens throughout history all the time. In these incredibly desperate situations, mothers are, are eating uh, their dead children and their dead infants um, just out of lack of food and just starvation. That's how dark it is. Um, there's still bodies in the streets, I mean, just imagine that. There's still bodies of the old, the young, men and women. They haven't even finished cleaning up um, all the, the corpses that were slain right there, and they're still laying there in the streets um, after the invasion. Um, many people are homeless because their lands and property were confiscated and just taken by the foreigners. Um, and they have to pay for their own water from their own wells and pay for wood from their own forests. Um, and then and whenever you have a setting like this, where it's just this impoverished and hopeless and lawless, um, crime is the inevitable uh, outcome, right? So crime is on the rise. Women are, women are being raped in Jerusalem and in the outside towns. Uh, once powerful princes are hung by their hands as an act of humiliation, the, the elders are disrespected. We're seeing this total breakdown in social order. And there's these scenes of young men being compelled to uh, grind at the mill and just images of, of little boys just staggering under heavy loads of wood. That's, that's the scene um, of this community. Um, and so I'm going to give you now just some, if you're not already depressed, um, let's, let's jump into the poetry because it's one thing to kind of just pull facts. But if you really, if, for those of you who love uh, poetry, to really get the feel of poetry, you got to read some of the poetry. So let's do that now. Lamentations 1.1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to festival. 
And what a, a poetic image. I mean, so for, for hundreds of years, people would, would make pilgrimage, right, to Zion, to Jerusalem, to come to the religious festivals. And the temple's been destroyed, the priesthood's been decimated, and everyone, most people are dead and exiled. And so no one is, there are no festivals in Jerusalem. And, and the, the imagery, the poetry there is these, these roads that once housed these pilgrims are weeping and crying because that's not happening anymore. Um, in the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. Uh, I think this probably envisions the moment when Babylon broke into the city. And in some sense, if you were killed in that time, that was kind of a bereavement. It was kind of a comfort because most people were already half-starved by that time after the siege. And as you read on in Lamentations, the, the author basically says, yeah, those were the lucky ones. The victims of the sword were luckier than those who survived. Because now when you walk into our homes, it just feels of death. That's what we are living in. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold has changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. All, all the wealth, all the gold has been stripped or tarnished in their palaces, um, which are now in ruins. And even like the, the stones of the temple can be found just as ruins at the heads of different streets, probably maybe by the Babylonians just to rub it in further. Um, so that is the scene here in Lamentations. Y'all get, get, got a feel for it? Um, just absolutely awful. And I think it goes without saying that none of us have lived through anything this horrific or tragic. Um, and so in that sense, no one, none of us can come to Lamentations and be like, I've had it worse. Um, we just can't. I mean, that's not to say there aren't people in the world alive today um, who are living in war zones like this. I think of, you know, the humanitarian crisis of Syria, for example, and how many Syrians have uh, endured and died in a situation like that, which in many ways could, they could fully identify with um, a scene like this. But there's something about Lamentations, as I just been reading through it the past few weeks, that it has this ability to speak to pain and suffering and despair in all its forms while still reaching for God. And that's the power of this book. Um, and one thing I want to make clear before we move on is that, and that Lamentations makes clear, is that um, God has done this. Make no doubt about it. And Lamentations 2.5 says this well enough. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah, mourning and lamentation. The, the word that is shockingly absent from lamentations is the word Babylon. Because although Babylon is the one who physically did all of this, it's, it's not even mentioned in the book. From the, from the standpoint of lamentations, God is the sole reason this fate has befallen us, that and our sins, because we're getting what we deserve. Um, before I move on, though, I want to make a distinction that I think has to be made, and it's this. Israel was judged according to the law. For those of us who are in Christ, we are not judged by the law, because Jesus came and fulfilled the law of God on behalf of those who put their faith in him, and he bore the penalty for the way we break it. So we don't come under the kind of judgment that we see in Lamentations. I think that's important to note, because we are not judged according to the law in Christ. 
Um, in that sense, we need to keep in mind, and please remember this, Lamentations was not written to Christians. It was written to Israelites under the law, although ultimately it was written for Christians like you and me. Does that make sense? Um, I think that's important to remember. C.S. Lewis has this awesome quote. He says, What do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because he's good? Have they never been to the dentist? And, and this is coming from a time, you know, I don't know, 60 years ago, when going to the dentist, they didn't have as much to, to make it painless, right? I mean, they just grabbed your tooth and ranked it out. Um, but of course, we, we, all, we all know that the dentist has our best at heart. And, um, but I, th- I think this is so true. I mean, sometimes we have this idea that like, yeah, I'm not afraid of God. He's so good. It's like, well, God can hurt you. Um, but Lamentations is, speaks to this, I think, in a beautiful way. That even in a book like Lamentations, where they are judged according to the law, we find uh, verses like this, that God does not afflict from his heart. Um, he doesn't grieve from his heart. Um, it's only ever for our good, but there is an element of fear. I mean, if someone's going to hurt you, and you know that they could and might, um, Fear is a very natural response uh, to that. Uh, If something bad happens in your life, though, I just don't know how helpful it is to try to figure out how God might be the cause of your pain. Um, It it usually only leads to more spiritual confusion in your life. And it's almost never beneficial to speculate about how some natural disaster is God's wrath against that city or if a particular disease is God's judgment on a certain behavior, or if some outcome is the result of a particular sin in your life or in someone else's life. And that's not to say that all those things couldn't be true. I don't know. It's just to say you don't really find yourself in a place to judge that because you just don't know all the reasons and factors of why something awful is happening in your life. You just don't. Or in someone, especially in someone else's life. And you just don't know how God might be involved in that. Uh, so don't, don't speculate. I think we get ourselves into trouble sometimes. Don't draw conclusions um, about drawing all these connections between some outcome and some sin in your life. It usually does not help because you do not have the full picture. It's better just to lean into faith and in trust in the goodness of God. Um, all of that speculation and drawing conclusions and connecting the dots, it usually leads to more harm than good, especially if you decide to share your wisdom with other people. Um, I was uh, reading uh, about a Christian couple who had a miscarriage, and um, here's what not to say to somebody after they have a miscarriage. This, this is what things people said to them. I'm sure the Lord will give you another baby. Oh, okay. Well, it's good to know there's babies to spare, you know, in God's heart, and I guess I'll get, you know, baby 2.0. But all well-meaning Christians, right, they're also told, maybe more people will come to Christ because of the death of your daughter. To which I would say, okay, let's... What if God killed your daughter so more people could come to Christ? <laughs> like, instead of my daughter. Um, or or this, is, this is the worst one. Never say this. The Lord must know he can trust you with this. 
So God's kind of giving you like this backhanded compliment, right? Like, you're just that trustworthy, Gabe, and don't you feel awesome? Don't you feel super trustworthy that God could, could trust you with this, this awful thing in your life? Um, so by the way, I mean, if you ever witness someone doing that at fullness, you have my permission to slap them. <laughs> just like across the head. Um, in my permission, not Pastor Bart's permission. <laughs> or the elders, or whatever liabilities are connected to that. Um, all right, well, let's, let's jump into the passage that I have for us today, which is Lamentations 3, 16 through 24, and that's in your bulletins. Um, also, you can pull out your pew Bibles, and we'll have it on the screen. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. And my soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Um, let's take a moment, if we can, and do an emotional check-in, kind of all together. Does that sound good? Uh, I don't know, some of you might be thinking like, this is church, we're not here to talk about our emotions. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Um, I mean, you can walk around uh, you can pray every day, read your Bible every day, fast weekly, worship with Christians, give to the poor, and walk around an emotional train wreck. Believe me, that's field tested and approved. Um, that's entirely doable. We need to take seriously our emotions, and I think books like Lamentations give us all the permission we need. Verses 17 and 18 again say, My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So is my hope from the Lord. Just take a second and think about this. How much peace do you feel in your soul these days? Are you mostly happy, sometimes happy, or mostly sad? How much energy? Or in the words of this passage, endurance, do you have these days?
How hopeful are you about the future? When you think about it. And finally, to what extent do you draw your hope from the Lord? As I continue, um, let a dialogue begin with you and the Holy Spirit as you've been thinking about these things in your life as we continue to engage this passage. C.S. Lewis said, Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I think there's a lot of truth to this, um, that because pain by, by its very... Uh, experience demands being attended to. God is able to grab us uh, in many ways through pain. Uh, but at the same time, there's, I think, another uh, idea that needs to be said to kind of um, complement this thought that I think Eugene Peterson says really well. He says, suffering, even the threat of suffering, can be redemptive. Not all the time, of course, for suffering doesn't always make us better. It often makes us worse. It can make us defiant, bitter, and lonely, but at least it holds out the possibility of being redemptive if you respond to it properly. I wish I could tell you this morning that every dark and painful season you go through, you'll come out a better person on the other side. That suffering and pain is always redemptive. That that season you're going through right now that's just awful, don't worry, you'll be more Christ-like and more godly on the other side of it. Wouldn't it be awesome if like suffering was had a guaranteed redemptive value in our life. And I think sometimes we think that way. Sometimes we think, I'm going through the wilderness, but I'm gonna be better for it on the other side. That's not necessarily the case. Sometimes, as Peterson says, suffering makes us worse people. <laughs> we're more bitter, we're more jaded, we're less trusting, hurt people hurt people, as they say, right? But suffering has this powerful potential to be redemptive in your life, as we respond properly to suffering in our life. God uses pain and loss. That's, that's not to say if you're lonely in your marriage, God's orchestrating that to draw you closer to him. God's not strategizing, okay, I'm gonna have these people defriend and stop following Suzanne so that finally she'll find her identity in Christ. And then, while I'm at it, let's keep Joe stuck in a job he hates so he'll love me more. And on top of that, let's maybe give an extra dose of marital strife to Chris and Emily so that they'll start seeking my face rather than each other's. Like God's not manipulative, but God will use the things in your life. He's not threatened by uh, a satisfying career. He's not threatened by emotionally healthy friendships. He's not threatened by loving marriages, but God will use whatever circumstance in our life to call us back to him. 
And guess what? Many of the circumstances in your life cause pain or loss in some form or fashion. And he will use that. For those of you who were here last week, he doesn't waste a locust plague. He'll use that locust plague to say, I'm here. There wasn't a day that went by that you weren't dealing with me. And by the way, there's a lot more pain on the way in this journey called life. Come back to me. I'm slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, full of grace and mercy. God isn't manipulative, but he is jealous. And that's, I think, the distinction the Bible makes for us. Um, There's this awesome story I read recently about a woman. uh, It's a true story about a woman uh, in Saudi Arabia. Maybe you all saw this. And uh, she went out recently to like a a horse farm outside Riyadh. uh, And she loves horses. And so she, you know, was next to this beautiful like white Arabian horse. And she took a a picture of her giving like a smooch right on the horse's uh, mouth and just kissing this horse. And then just to kind of show her love for horses to the world, she put it on her social media. And so her husband uh, saw this picture of his wife kissing a horse and did the only logical thing in that situation. He filed for divorce because of this incredible infidelity. And so he did. He, he divorced his wife over this picture uh, of, him, of her kissing a horse. And uh, the woman uh, commented that she doesn't regret posting the picture, which expresses her love for horses, and that she's not upset about splitting up from a man who can't distinguish between humans and animals. God's jealousy isn't ridiculous. It isn't frantic or irrational. The simple fact is God wants what belongs to him. James 4 4 says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He who yearns over the Spirit... He yearns over the spirit, sorry, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. So this verse is so profound. Whenever you are in the New Testament and you come across a verse that says, the scripture says, or it is written in the scriptures, what's that a reference to? Yeah, the Old Testament, exactly. What's fascinating about this verse is there is no verse in the Old Testament that says, he jealously yearns over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. There's no verse in the Old Testament that says this. And yet, James says, this is what the scripture says. And James is essentially saying, this is, this is a summary statement of the Old Testament. This is what the Old Testament's about, about a God who's yearning jealously for the hearts that he's created. And I think now we can just say, this is a summary of the Bible, is The the depiction of a God who's yearning jealously for your spirit, for my spirit, for everyone's spirit. That's what we find in the God of the Bible. And when we say that God is jealous, what we mean is that he's not indifferent in any way towards us. When we say that God's jealous for our spirit, what we mean is that his attitude towards you is one of desire, not neediness. God doesn't need you and me. You complete me, said God, never. Like, God's not up there going, 
you make me a better me. I'm a better God with you close to my heart. This just, I just feel like a better me with you. That's never God's heart. That's never God's reality. God's love isn't a, his jealousy isn't a jealousy of codependency. It isn't a jealousy of insecurity like the Saudi husband. It is, simply put, a jealousy of love. I can't say it any simply any simpler or more profound. It is a jealousy of love. Pure and undefiled love. Desire for you. Desiring the best for you. And when we say that God desires the best for us, we are saying that God desires us to have him and for him to have us. That's the jealousy of God. And and he's, he's calling to us in our pain. He's calling to us in our hopelessness. Back to that place. This, this passage in, in Lamentations that we've been in, um, it's about hopelessness. It's about pain and despair, finding hope again in God. But more and more these days, I, just, I find myself feeling that like, biblical preaching can't just be done in this Christian echo chamber. Like, I mean, like right here. Like We need to be talking about together in this place how the world thinks about these ideas. Um, So how does the world think about hope and meaning in what is otherwise seems to be a broken world? Um, So here are some thoughts that I just put down. This is particularly particularly within secular secular society. So first you've got secular pessimism. Hope is foolish, wishful thinking. There is no meaning in the universe. Yay! Yay! And then you've got secular optimism. Life is meaningless, but we can assign meaning to our experience, our experiences. So yeah, there's no inherent meaning in the universe of these random particles interacting with each other, but we can assign meaning to our, our experiences and to whatever else, just to kind of help us cope with an otherwise meaningless universe. And then you've got secular humanism, which is mainstream society, right? Hope and meaning is found in the love that we share with others. That's essentially what secular humanism says, right? You guys, hope and meaning is found in the love that you share with each other. And then you've got Christian humanism, which says, hope and meaning is found in the love that we share with others. Yes, there's an echo in this room. Um, I mean, and this is the problem these days, right, is so much of Christianity is being flattened into humanism, and we end up completely losing our voice, right, when we lose things like the gospel. Um, because what ends up happening is we, we use Jesus language, and, and we use Bible verses, at least the feel-good ones, but at the end of the day, we end up saying exactly the same thing as the secular humanist, which is that hope and meaning is found in love that you share with others. And then... There's Christianity, which is not Christian humanism, by the way. Christianity says the world is filled with purpose and meaning, although it often remains mysterious and elusive to us. Hope is found in relationship with God and people because of God's present redemption and final redemption. That's what Christianity says. Uh, Jason Dusing, in his book, Mere Hope, Life in an age of cynicism, 
comments that with this explosion of interconnectivity, the internet and constant updates on all of our devices of like global tragedy and conflict, um, most people have defaulted, he says, to either resigned despair or distracted indifference. And I don't know about you guys, but like I like feel like I ping pong between both of those poles. Like at times, like last fall, I was definitely in the resigned despair category. Like just feeling the incredible brokenness of the world, the rank suffering of humanity. And I'll just be honest, like God's apparent inaction. <laughs> you feel me? <laughs> like I'm not saying God isn't doing awesome things in the earth. I just wish He would do. More. <laughs> um, that's maybe me being too real. I don't know. Um, and so then I kind of fall into this like despair. Um, and then the other side is like, I'm like, okay, let me just insulate myself from that and distract myself. And I can kind of not feel all the hurt, all the pain, all the destruction. Um, and I'm trying to pursue a gospel shaped perspective, which is one that embraces pain, that can stare pain down in the face. The Son of God did exactly that, but then also calls us to be the hands and feet and mouth of Christ in the earth. That's what I'm trying to hold on to. By the way, when you give to fullness, when you tithe here, um, your money uh, goes both to gospel proclamation in the earth, but also the alleviation of human suffering through supporting you know, the orphanage in India uh, through Tom Odapon, and um, taking care of now excellent medical care for women in Ethiopia through Nate Ross um, and ministering to uh, Syrian refugees living in Jordan through Amy Jacks, and I could go on. Um, but as I said, it feels like for many of us, for all our efforts, and we want to continue making these efforts to reach the world and alleviate suffering through our resources and efforts, it still just feels like the, the world's getting worse, not better, doesn't it? And, and that's, that's the crushing feeling. And you see this reflected uh, in the explosion of, of apocalyptic or dystopian movies and books and even video games now that have all but replaced the more hopeful stories in which the world is left a better place or the town is left a better place than when the story began. Like, we don't even have a taste for that anymore. It's just... That's just fantasy, right? Um, these days, it's trendy to be cynical, especially towards authorities and institutions, politics, church, even God. And I remember when it started becoming like cool in the South for Christians, not like lost people, but for Christians to criticize the evangelical church with a well-placed cuss word on top. I was like, oh, like, this is like the cool new thing now, I guess. Like, criticize the evangelical church and like a, a cuss word thrown in for like rhetorical effect. Like, okay, I, I got to get on with the program. And I'm not, I would be lying if I said I haven't partaken in these revelries at times. Because um, honestly, I, I have to be honest, I identify with a number of the criticisms that my generation has with the way church is and has been done here in the South. Um, I get it. A non-Christian, uh, Muhammad Farooz, probably the most uh, acclaimed composer of kind of the millennial generation, born in 1985, 
uh, wrote this. I think it's so interesting. The age of anxiety has given way to the age of cynicism. Among my generation, cynicism is no longer a bad word. It's being celebrated, and it's often mistaken for intelligence. It is better to be wry and distrustful than to be open and trusting. That's not true. I don't know what is. You know, I, I've been, um, I've come to a point in my interactions with church and culture that I'm ready to make a few uh, statements publicly. So here we go. Um, I try not to just give you all of my thoughts like the moment they, I've been, I've been resonating with these for a few years now. Um, and, it's, and, he, and I'll just kind of jump in. In the 21st century, it is so easy to be skeptical because we've all lost confidence in leaders and organizations, whether it be political parties, companies, or organized religion. And it's now the expectation that you walk around suspicious and a little bit skeptical, and your thoughts stupid and naive if you don't. In my opinion, the real challenge is trying to remain willing to trust again, even after having been disappointed. Those are the real heroes, the ones swimming against the current, not the skeptics. I mean, skepticism may have been cutting edge 100 years ago. If you were a skeptic in society 100 years ago, you were head of the curve. And maybe even to some extent a decade ago. Today it's mainstream. But hear me, suspicion, skepticism, jadedness are not the ingredients upon which to build a better world or a better church. You know, it's easy to question everything you've been taught since and in Sunday school, at least for my generation. The real question, the real challenge, is can you do that while holding on to a tender heart and walking in the Holy Spirit? That's what I want. It's easy to be a little cynical these days. In fact, it's encouraged. The question that actually matters is, can you be a person of hope? That's the person that stands out in this day and age. Hopeful about the world. Hopeful about the church. Hopeful about life. Hopeful in God. Hopeful in the gospel. You know, when I, when I read the book of Lamentations, there's different words that come to mind about the author. Words like depression, despair, agony. But for all the pain and loss, you know what word doesn't come to mind when I read Lamentations? Cynical. There isn't an ounce of, of cynicism, of finger pointing, of skepticism, of suspicion towards God or people. Pain could have made the author a worse person, as Peterson suggests often happens, but it doesn't here. We read this again, Lamentations 3, 21 through 24. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. 
Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Let's self-identify as the people we are in Christ. We're a people alive with hope. I mean, if, if that's not true of us in Christ, what are we even doing? Right? Now, sometimes we can be, we, well, actually always, we need to be honest, because sometimes our hope has died, like the author of Lamentation says in verse 18. And, and we're searching for it again among a people who can declare of God, great is your faithfulness, Lord, as verse 23 says. They're not saying that out in the world. <laughs> but we can be honest, right? We can, sometimes um, our hope has died as verse 18 says. Sometimes that's where you at, you're at, and I don't know, maybe that's where you're at this morning. You just feel hopeless about life, about whatever. Um, your soul is bereft of peace. You've been in this dark cloud uh, for weeks, months, even years, and you can echo the words of lamentations that I've just forgotten what happiness is. How does hope live again when it's died in your life? You know, the author of Lamentations isn't just a poet who decided to write a lament for the nation. I mean, we find at one point he says that those whom my hands held and raised have perished. So this is someone whose own children were murdered. And he says that he finds his hope just in casting himself upon the love of God, declaring that his mercy meets him again every morning, declaring the faithfulness of God, and then saying out of his soul, out of, I love that, out of his soul, you're my portion, Lord. That's why I have hope. Therefore, I have hope. There's, uh, I'm gonna go and call Craig up as we move and take communion in a second. There's this story that Tim Keller shares um, about a high school girl uh, that he was talking to the, uh, at his church, and she was telling him about how, like, you know, depressed she is because, like, uh, the popular kids at school don't like her, and how she, like, she really wants to kind of, like, have, like, become more popular and have more of these people like her, and, and, and Tim Keller started saying things like, well, I mean, t- don't you know that your identity's in Christ, and, like, your value and your worth comes from what he says about you, not the acceptance of other people. And she says, but what good is all that if you're not popular? And I love that because we're, none of us are any different than that high school girl. <laughs> so maybe it's not popularity for you, but that's the bottom line is we're all struggling to say the Lord is my portion. Like he's enough. And I don't know what it is for you, it may be what what good is all that if I'm not this? Or I don't have this or whatever. Um, and I think that is, that's what God's pressing upon us. And God will use pain. He'll use suffering. Not because he afflicts from the heart, but because he's trying to get us to that place where we can just say, God, you are our portion. Hope is in you. And that is a message that speaks to a cynical world. Um, and that's what we celebrate here. We celebrate the sacraments body and blood of Christ, which is our portion, our, the witness of his presence in our life. Let me invite us to the table this morning. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. So come, all of you who have faith in Christ, and join his people in this remembrance of Jesus. Come, you who feel far from God, and you who feel near.
Come, you who feel clean and you who feel dirty. Come, you that have been broken and you that have been healed. Come, you who have not been here very many times and you who have been here often. Come, you who have much and you who have little. Come black, come white, come women, come men, come children who know our Savior. For the sinless life that you should have lived has been lived for you by Christ. And the guilty death that you should have died has been died for you by Christ. We bring nothing to this table except faith. So come with empty and outstretched hands to receive the body and blood of Christ given for you. I'm going to invite you guys to come forward, receive communion. If you are in this center section, then you'll come here. In this section, you'll go there. This side will go there. Let's receive the body and blood of Christ together.